Olympics podcast. I'm your host Jackie and today I'm joined by Dan and Will as well as the very special guest the Inner Sanctums writer Hamish Spence. Uh, yeah thank you very much for having me on. It's uh, only my second podcast appearance for the Inner Sanctums so I feel a bit out of my depth but hoping I can contribute wherever I can especially in the area of fencing which I have some positive and a few negative experiences with as well. <laughs> What do you mean by negative experiences there, Hamish? Uh, well, I dislocated my left knee while fencing, which was the last time I ever did fencing at school. And uh, it was very embarrassing having to call another ambulance to the school uh, for the second time. Uh, I did my first knee in 2016. No, sorry, 2015. And then my other one in 2017. So uh, fencing... Uh, don't let anyone tell you it's a soft sport just because you have a mask on or a jacket. Uh, it can injure yourself if you have very bad knees like myself. I came so close to asking the follow-up, but I'm glad he got there about <laughs> what the first ambulance was for. <laughs> How are you going, Will? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Thanks, Dan. Plenty going on. Um, things really starting to heat up. Got some more selection news later as well, so I can't wait to get into that. What about you, Dan? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Tomorrow is a month to the opening ceremony as we record. So things are getting close and it's all starting to happen and, and come together. So I'm really excited for the next month and a half. Yeah. So we'll start with our news segment as always. And it's a bit of a follow-up story from last week's opening, which was that fans have now been confirmed will be allowed to attend the Olympics. Obviously, it is just domestic Japanese fans. And the number 10,000 that was floated last week appears to be the accurate number. But the interesting part of the announcement is that no cheering will be permitted at the Games, which hasn't exactly worked in other sporting leagues as far as I've noticed in the past 12 months. It, it is that there's no cheering and, and we're yet to see how that goes, but clapping is allowed. Um, and certainly, I imagine that we might see the return, not of the Vuvuzela, thankfully, but of those um, clappers that people have at stadiums that are designed to make just as much noise as possible. So we could still get that atmosphere, but I don't think it'll be coming from people's mouths. Yeah, I think it's a shame, obviously, that we are not, people won't be able to cheer. I, I will wonder if we'll see anything uh, from some of the host broadcasters like we've seen in sports, like uh, the AFL, where they've put in like, pipe crowd noises i think by the end when hopefully at some point we are through with no crowds or our limits on crowd attendance there's probably a good listicle analysis piece in them which broadcaster did the best at making uh, the fake crowd noise sound the best and integrate it properly so who knows maybe there's a follow-up piece in there yeah definitely and um in our returning weekly segment how much of the Japanese population want the games to be postponed? <laughs> this week, we have a poll out that says that 65% um, 
of people wanted the games to be postponed or cancelled, and seventy percent thought that it wouldn't be health wouldn't be held safely and securely, um, and that they don't have that kind of trust in the government. So it is a concerning number, but um, it does look like the games are going to press ahead, and they're going to be pretty strict on these rules and restrictions to keep it safe. Yeah, that seventy percent numbers interesting because I wouldn't I would assume that it's not entirely just based on we don't trust the government and the IOC to do the right thing but you're also having to put a level of trust in international athletes who have been living in very different conditions to the Japanese population and also the uh, expected Olympic bubble that you would expect that hmm I think these athletes are going to flay out the rules therefore I'm going to say it's not going to work safely and securely. Well, it's interesting. We talked a few weeks ago about the fact that there was some game planning that um, some athletes would probably have COVID or bring COVID into the bubble. And Will, you saw um, a bit that it looks like that at the moment the Ugandan contingent um, might be struggling with that. Yeah, it's exactly what's happened, Dan. There's been a a member of the Ugandan Olympic team who has tested positive um, upon arrival in Japan. So I think um, going back to what we were just talking about, it'll be interesting to see whether or not that um, shapes sort of the public public opinion in any way. But um, yeah, so nine, nine um, athletes from Uganda arrived um, on in Tokyo on Saturday. And um, yeah, one of the, one of the athletes has tested positive to COVID there. So um they have been have been isolated um, based on sort of those regulations, which is which is good. So hopefully, hopefully nothing further, but a bit of a bit of a warning shock maybe. Well, and, and in a bit more of, of concerning news, it, it looks like that um, athlete and the whole Ugandan Olympic Party were vaccinated, um, and they had all tested positive in Uganda on their way up um, to Japan. So it's it's a bit of a concern that that kind of thing can happen um, and certainly doesn't instill a lot of confidence, but hopefully the bubble protocols will, will stand strong and there won't be any further issues. Yeah. And I think it's good that this has been caught so early prior to the games, because it is still a month out, which means they use athletes are a chance to still compete, which is a good thing because it's not an automatic disqualification. Um, But ultimately it also means that the testing protocol is quite rigid and has been stuck to very early on rather than it being wishy-washy at the start and then being extremely wishy-washy during the games. Uh, And the interesting thing is that they have been tested, so they tested negative upon arrival originally. This, it sounds like, was the second time they were tested, which ultimately means that we've got to keep remembering there is this incubation period um, and you can test negative five days in a row and the sixth day you end up as a positive case. And it's not necessarily a false positive. It's just taken that long for COVID to present itself. Yeah, I think as you said, it really, I guess, outlines uh, how difficult uh, this could all potentially be. We've seen some of the logistical issues all over the world with different organizations and our sporting groups trying to, get a fence up but I think kind of as to your point earlier Jackie it's probably a good litmus test in a way of just seeing how the Olympics and uh, the relevant authorities they have in place will deal with something like this because I think the sad reality is that this isn't going to be the last time that somebody tests positive or there could be some complication uh, with the bubble or biosecurity so I think hopefully if they're able to handle this case well hopefully it bodes well for kind of 
late in the games without any possible uh, complications going forward. Yeah, I think that the Australian Olympic Committee's war game ended up with 100 athletes will present in the bubble with symptoms upon arrival almost, or like will test positive on arrival, which, yeah, it happening this early, as I've said, is better for the system being tested. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And moving away from the logistics and the COVID, um, it's not just in Australia that we've seen a massive amount of selection and the Olympic trials going on. Um, We've also seen the US Olympic team start to take shape. And one of the great stories is Alison Felix, who's on her way to her fifth Olympics. Um, And it's her first after giving birth a couple of years ago. Um, And the circumstances of uh, the birth of her daughter, Cameron, um, were a bit unusual. There was, it was an emergency C-section and um, she then had a fight with Nike, who are a sponsor about um, cutting her pay and ensuring her pay uh, for her performances post-pregnancy. Um, and then um, she talked a little bit about how difficult it was um, with the COVID delay as well of a year. Because, um, of course, Felix, uh, 17 years ago, was first at the Olympic trials um, ahead of Athens. And she's won six golds overall, um, and she's qualified in the 400 and almost certainly the 4x400 women's and possibly the mixed 4x400, which is a new event. Um, And the trials aren't finished, so she may yet add more, but it's a pretty great story. Yeah, it's been great watching this US team take shape because they've had both their athletics and their swimming trials go on over the past week. But this story specifically, like your fifth games is massive. The most games we've got on the Australian team so far is four. And there is a number of players, go, uh, not players, athletes going to their fourth games. But the fact that she's come back after giving birth um, to a two, like the child is now two, which it shows that you can come back in your sport, in a lot of sports as well, um, after pregnancy or injury. And it's a positive story for a lot of young women specifically that you can just like keep pushing. Um, In the case of Nike, like people will try to put you down, but you're one of the best of the best um, and you should not actually settle for less than what you deserve. Yeah. I was just going to add like reading her story, like just looking at the basic details of her being able to go to her fifth Olympics, especially I believe she's 35 year old. 35 years old it's an incredible feat but when you add on all of those aggravating factors and are those obstacles that she's had to deal with I think uh, these are the kind of stories you just love to see out of the Olympics no matter uh, which country you're from because it's just such a great tale of uh, I guess what people can do if they set their mind to it and just what these incredible athletes can accomplish just uh, you know with all their training and uh, mental toughness as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it is great to have those stories because uh, by contrast, there are some that maybe aren't so great. Um, and Ryan Lochte is, is one of those. Um, he's a, a multi-time Olympian. Um, it would have been his fifth as well had he qualified, um, but he hasn't qualified for the 200-meter individual medley, which is his signature event in the swimming. Um, of course, Lochte is most well-known not for his Olympic feats and being Michael Phelps' teammates, but for an incident that happened in the aftermath of Rio, um, we had a dust up with the Brazilian police and it turned out that um, perhaps he wasn't quite as truthful with them as he might have hoped to have been. Um, and obviously that was a bit of an international punchline and um, 
he was handed a suspension afterwards as a result. But it's um, it's been quite a wild ride for Ryan Lochte, but it looks like this might be the end of the road. Yeah, which Tokyo could have been a real redemption story for Lochte. Um, They would, in the US media at least, have presented him as, in a way, a comeback kid rather than him just being uh, the villain of the US Olympic team, I should say. But it's funny in the sense of you look at that he missed out by 2.7 seconds, which is not a lot of time in the grand scheme of things, but in the Olympics is a lot of time. Um, And you can't blame like him specifically for missing out because there's just younger kids coming through each year in the U S and in Australia doing better and better, especially in the swimming. But it's a shame that we won't get to see him back because it would be interesting to see him come back and be at least humbled from that 2016 experience and looking to make a better name for himself. Yeah. I think, uh, Absolutely. When I was reading the story, that's what I found really sad about it. And I, I guess it's uh, part of like what makes the Olympics so special, but also what makes it such a hard event to go to is it only happens every four years, of course, five years in this case due to COVID. So uh, after, I guess, his uh, discretion at the last Olympics, he probably would have been preparing for these upcoming games, not only just because he's an athlete, he's a, he's a swimmer, that's what he wants to do, but also probably with that idea if I can get back to that world stage uh you know win gold uh get some glory again then it really completes that comeback and redemption story so uh, unfortunately it does show that you know father time does catch everyone even the most extraordinary kind of athletes uh among us but I think as you said Jackie it's a shame that he won't get that chance to redeem himself and part of what makes the Olympics so hard is that this would have been his last opportunity probably yeah, and at the other end of the spectrum, we've got um, Katie Grimes, who wasn't even born the first time Lochte went to the Olympics. Um, she is going to the Olympics as a 15-year-old, um, and she will be going in the 800-metre freestyle. Um, she'll be going behind uh, the queen of distance swimming as she's been crowned Katie Ledecky. Um, but she has qualified um, as just 15, and it's pretty exciting to be able to go across um at such a young age and really start that career. Yeah, she'll be one of the youngest members of the US team at the very least because I think 13-year-olds can qualify for some select sports. Skateboarding was an instance of that. But to be so young to get to live out your Olympic dream for the first time, um, ultimately the results almost in Tokyo don't matter as much. Like she obviously won't be thinking about that, but she's also got a massive career ahead of her now that she's going so young she'll be a darling in the u.s media even if she doesn't make the final but to be going head to head with katie ledecky and ledecky is phenomenal in the distance events and to only finish six seconds behind ledecky in what was a less impressive trials of what some people might have expected for Ledecky but at the same time she was competing in nearly every freestyle event it was insane there was a seven minute gap between her 200 meter free and her 1500 meter free races so to maybe be dealing with Ledecky that is slightly uh fatigued but still competing against her in extraordinary fashion at U.S. trials which is probably the hardest trials event for the Olympics is just phenomenal for a 15 year old to do. Yeah, absolutely. And um, 
We, we talked about it a little bit with Ariana Titmus later, but um, Katie Ledecky also kind of came into the US trials not having a taper, just kind of in the middle of her block of training leading up to the Olympics because there's such a short time frame. So we can expect Ledecky to go a bit faster at the Games, but to see someone like Katie Grimes is a really exciting story and, and definitely one for the future. Yeah, and... Keeping with the U.S. team announcements, we've got a big one from the U.S. women's basketball team specifically. Last week, we obviously had the big ones for the men saying they were all in. But a Seattle Storm player and soon-to-be five-time Olympian now, Sue Bird, has been picked for her fifth U.S. national team, as well as Diana Tarousi. Tarousi. Tarousi, sorry. Um, which... It's one thing to be a five-time Olympian. It's a whole other thing to be a five-time Olympian that's probably going to get their fifth gold medal in that team. Yeah, and- well, they're certainly on a streak. Um, they've they've won six consecutive gold medals already. Uh, they're looking for number seven, which is a pretty insane um, streak. And, and Dawn Staley was a player on that 1996 team in Barcelona. Um, when they first won that gold medal and she's now the coach of the team. So things have really come full circle um, and everything's changed except the fact that the U.S. win gold at basketball at the Olympics. Yeah, and Sue Bird will be in that team, <laughs> um, which like I spoke to Lauren Jackson and she talked about her because they played at the Seattle Storm together for about 10 years. And the way that she spoke about Bird um, in the sense of just her ability as a guard that knew how to perfectly get the ball to any teammate. Um, she will be, despite being older and having had injuries over the past couple of years, she'll be elite at this Olympics as well. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that she'll absolutely crush it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's not just the women's basketball team that had some big news. Um the names keep rolling out of the dream team. Um, we know there's going to be no LeBron, um, but there's pretty much the next best thing with Kevin Durant going. Um, and it looks like Devin Booker, um, Brad Beal, and Draymond Green will also be going along. So it's a pretty um, significant team. So I think if the organizers in Japan just want to pack those gold medals, they can probably mail them off now. Yeah. <laughs> That the men's team is just insane. Like they're going to have to make cuts. The amount of people that are saying I'm on board all of a sudden, I'm like, Oh, hate to be that 13th player that misses out because you're 13th best in the world right now. That's what happens when you have a 57 man squad to begin with. So exactly. imagine being able to play 56 on there. Like I'm not last on the list, but I'm still in the 50 best basketball players in the world. Chat. LeBron's 57 because he's playing with the Looney Tunes, so. Oh, now you're still my joke too. Right, I see how it is. <laughs> sure. Um, in, in slightly um, kind of different news, slightly closer to home um, and on this side of the Pacific Ocean, um, Laurel Hubbard, um, who we spoke about a few weeks ago, um, has been selected to qualify for the uh, New Zealand Olympic team. And she'll be uh, the first openly transgender athlete to compete at the games. Um, She's qualified as a weightlifter. um, And there's obviously been a bit of controversy um, about it, but with the rules changed um, for qualification because there just haven't been any weightlifting tournaments due to COVID-19, Hubbard has qualified and it's a, a really exciting opportunity for her. Yeah, and 
I think that a really positive part of this story is that other competitors are actually throwing their support behind her. Uh, so Australian weightlifter Charisma Amoe Tarrant um, has has said that she has a lot of respect for her and all the other lifters and she actually just hopes that everyone can come together and enjoy this Olympics, which, as Dan said, there is a lot of controversy and a lot of poor language being used regarding uh, Hubbard being named on the team. But it is something that should be taken as a positive for inclusion in the Olympics. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely. hard to find the words. <laughs> like, Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just athletes that have been supportive publicly. Um, Susie O'Neill, who's a former gold medalist and is the deputy chef de mission in Australia, um, basically said that she's thrilled that um, Laurel has passed all the rules and is set to compete at the Games. And um, she's looking forward to seeing uh, Christina Motarant and... Laurel Hubbard competing together um, and it looks like there's going to be plenty of tight competition in that 87 kilogram category at Tokyo and a little bit further away again we'll jump jump around a bit tonight global travelers we are not anymore but we can still talk like we are um, the uh, British cycling team has been announced for the Tokyo Olympics there's 26 riders which is quite a big team um, and the British have come in with quite a reputation. Um, they've got six previous gold medalists and they were pretty much dominant in the track cycling, um, basically dating back all the way to 2008. Um, their technology has been a big part of it and having teams like Team Sky in the pro circuit that they can basically co-opt um, elite road riders back to the track um, has been really helpful. But Laura Kenny is kind of the, the spearhead of this. She's already a four-time gold medalist coming into the game. So that's a pretty impressive achievement. And her husband, Jason, similarly has four to his name. Um, both of them talked about the fact that a year um, off has helped Laura. She's recovering from a shoulder injury. Um, and so having that year has helped. Um, and we've got some other really exciting riders in the, the road race, Adam and Simon Yates, who've both previously raced for the Australian Green Edge team uh, in the pros. We'll be riding the road race, as will Garrett Thomas, who's a former Tour de France winner, and Tao Gagoan Hart, who's a former Giro winner. So they're pretty littered with elite talent, um, and that's a, a very exciting thing to see. Unless you're an Australian cyclist going to the Olympics, then it's far less exciting. I suppose it um, adds to the adds to the rivalry a bit. It's always good to good to see that kind of kind of take place. And obviously, yeah, with that such a, such depth to to their cycling team, um, the UK look look uh, look good, look well placed for for Tokyo. Yeah, they're talking about eight gold medals this time around, which would be a, a pretty massive drop off from the twelve they won last time. So you know, take that with a pinch of salt. It's crazy to say, oh, eight gold medals just isn't quite good enough, <laughs> despite the fact that you've dominated this event for how long? <laughs> and there's talent coming through in almost every country at this Olympics, especially for the cycling. And um, speaking of kind of global dominance and, and everyone just assuming the gold medal is going to be yours, um, we thought we'd talk a little bit about, a bit, little bit about the Black Ferns um, and the All Black Sevens, um, who were obviously the sevens rugby team coming out of New Zealand and um, I think we all know that the New Zealanders are pretty dominant at rugby um, 
So it's interesting to see. God, it's not only are they dominant, the Wallabies just have not been as good as they used to be. Absolutely. Um, The Sevens uh, in New Zealand have have announced that they are going to start cutting their squads down to to 16 players next week and then um, eventually down to the 12 that will be the Olympic squad. Um, There's some really interesting history um, with Stephen Donald is the coach. Um, He's a former All Black um, and he's involved and he was um, kind of the story for a lot of these athletes about coming in at the last second. He wasn't initially selected to play in the 2011 World Cup and then uh, injury struck the All Blacks didn't help us um but Stephen Donald jumped in and basically kicked the the winning penalty goal um for the rugby world cup victory after coming from nowhere so um he's used as a bit of an inspirational story for athletes um particularly those that might not be named in the first round of selection I guess it's a, a pretty good motivator to try and try and keep everyone just working hard and and um, and putting in sort of all their effort to, to get selected. That's that's funny with like the the US basketball squad, like we were talking about before. If it's a fifty-seven man squad and you know you're on the outer, you're, you're probably not quite as likely to to put in the effort. But I, I suppose if there's a chance to to um to sort of make make the jump at the last minute um, like this, there's yeah all the all the motivation you need to to work hard yeah the all blacks have been so dominant for so long in rugby union especially internationally and then the fact that they've gone and won gold at the commonwealth games and then at the sevens world cup it's it's obviously not sewn up as much because fiji will be looking to uh win gold again but there's just so much talent in that squad that people were saying, oh, I'm not going to go to the Olympics because I'm going to go to the World Cup in the like full side rugby union World Cup. But who they're getting in to replace the people that are choosing to skip out on the Olympics is are still f- far better than some players that will come into the Australian sides. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get to see the uh, Australian sides, the New Zealanders, and the Fijians, and there'll be an Oceanian, Oceania Barbarians team um, at the Oceania Sevens tournament this weekend. Um, and that's going to be a really interesting uh, competition. Um, it's the, basically the last hit out for all of these players, all of these sides to push their selection, to find their patterns and to get into form. Um, and it's the first time that they've played together um, in about 16 months because of COVID. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how it goes. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point, as he said. And I think even touching on what Will said earlier, it uh, must be tough for some of the athletes, knowing that probably for most other countries, they'd be, you know, their best player. Well, as we're saying, for countries like the US in basketball and New Zealand with rugby, it's very likely that you'll miss out on the squad altogether. But I think it's probably a mark of we obviously know how talented they are but i think what a company's success is often a good culture so it's probably a credit to them if they can really build this all team all squad mentality because not only is it going to be good just for the conduciveness of the group but also if there's that horror scenario where a couple players get injured so like even though uh, there's been a few unusual kind of build up to the olympics like you'd have to imagine that they're pretty well placed heading into it yeah, and I think it's a great chance for us to see the women's sevens again. Um, 
that was possibly one of the best tournaments for at least Australian team sports in 2016. And that was the moment when at least I fell back in love with rugby union for a little bit, but it was specifically watching the women's comp. Um, And it'll be interesting to see if the team is cohesive enough after this 16 months apart to go back to back with gold medals. Obviously a lot of teams are in similar circumstances, but it's important. Like Australians care about winning gold medals, whether we like it or not, want to admit it or not, I should say. But this team event, I think, to not only win it the first time it's ever at the Olympics, then to go back to back, similar to what the Fiji men's will want to do, isn't going to be an easy ride as it was in 2016. I think that knowing, having experience in the sport, we kind of caught a couple of countries with their pants down. And people have looked at like the US team that's going to come in who some are saying actually will stand a chance to win the rugby sevens for the women's, which will be interesting in itself to see in a sport that America is not dominant in at all. I think it's really interesting because for quite a long time now, the, the US men's sevens team has been kind of one of the forces in the world. Um, they seem to find a way of recruiting uh, college football players um, who are just too quick um, and just seem to be able to, to outrun everyone um, or some college track and field athletes. They teach them to catch and all of a sudden you've got a rugby sevens team. Um, so they really have been a force, but the women haven't quite had that dominant level. So they will be looking really to assert that and ensure that they can compete at the level. Yeah, and with exciting qualification news, the athletics team is growing almost every day for Australia, it feels like. And a big story would be Katrina Bissett uh, breaking her own national 800 metres record on track, which locked in her place in the Australian team, uh, which was the fourth fastest time in the world for the year, um, which puts you in good position we say week after week, you never know what's going to happen at the Olympics, but I believe it was one of the swim Australian swimming team coaches that said, if you're in that top five, you are pretty much a 50, 50 chance of winning a gold medal. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it, it's really interesting. We have seen kind of some of those performances that of athletes who, who maybe have come almost a little bit from nowhere um, or from a bit further away. Um, and all of a sudden they're starting to look like metal threats in athletics, which is not a sport that we typically do all that well. Um, Jeff Reesley qualified as well in the men's 800. Um, he ran a couple of really quick 800s, including one where he ran basically straight off the plane and onto the track um, and finished 0.16 seconds outside the qualifying time. Um, so it's really exciting that he's run a qualifying time to go to his fourth Olympics um, if he's going to be selected when the squad is finalised um, in the next few weeks. And, and Eleanor Patterson won the women's high jump. Um, she cleared 196 um, and failed three times at 199, which, you know, is understandable. It's a long way up. Um, and she will be competing at her second Olympics if she goes. And she's not even the best in Australia at the moment. So Nicola McDermott, um, who we saw at trials clear two metres, became the first Australian woman to do so. And that puts her as a, a genuine metal threat. Um, but Eleanor Patterson's not far off either. Um, so there's plenty going on in athletics. Yeah, and Patterson's gotten that 199 before. It is her personal best, I believe. And with 
those two being so close in their jumps, it sets up a good competition, which you do actually need the teams to be competitive within itself uh, to push the team to get more medals overall. It's an individual event, of course, but the Australian athletics team is still a team and they will be cheering for each other just as much as, well, not quite just as much, but as well as going for their gold medals. So I guess another big thing is we've had the French Open going for the past couple of weeks. We've then also recently gotten the seeding for the Olympics. But Nadal, I believe mid last week, uh, said that he would not be going to either Wimbledon, which is coming up on Monday, or the Olympics in 2021. But excitingly for Aussies, Curios and Barty have neither said, no, we're not going, but have pretty much confirmed that they will be going. Curios was a bigger concern in my eyes at the very least, because I think I jokingly said one night, you better, like, it'll be hard to get him on the plane to some effect. But he, as of recording, is flying out tomorrow, I believe, to go play at Wimbledon. And then he'll probably play a couple of tournaments on the hard surface to get his training up. Um, and then come into the Olympics in top form. He obviously hasn't played a whole bunch of competitive tennis in the past couple of years. Well, past two years, I should say, actually. But he, at the Australian Open, looked really good for someone that had not competed internationally for the entire 2020 year, aside from the 2020 Australian Open. So I'm excited to see Curios back and hopefully still with as much personality as he had at the Australian Open? <laughs> it's really interesting. He's really gone full circle. Um, in 2016, he was basically asked not to put his name forward for selection um, after what was at the time a pretty wide streak of poor behaviour, including picking fights with the chef, the mission, Kitty Chiller, um, which is probably not a good way to get a job. I, I wouldn't recommend picking a fight with your boss in public. Um, if you want to get a job, but he really has kind of come full circle on, on that sort of Nick Kyrgios. And we see him very differently now, I think, to the way we did a couple of years ago. I think uh, you're definitely right there, Dan. I, I did find it interesting, the point about him kind of showing the same kind of spirit at the Australian Open we saw earlier this year. Unfortunately, going back to early with no crowds, it might be a bit hard if he just gestures to the crowd and they have to sit there in silence. Uh, not interact with him. But as he said, I think kind of the turnaround of how he's really become uh, one of our more celebrated, you know, Australian international athletes. And of course, Ash Barty, who uh, is probably uh, arguably Australia's most beloved sporting figure also going over there would be uh, really special to see both of them do well. And hopefully, uh, as you touched on Jackie, they can get that kind of conditioning and experience playing on a harder service leading in then uh, give themselves a good chance to uh, potentially place at the games. Can't see it happening realistically, but can you imagine a Nick Kyrgios, Ash Barty double, mixed doubles team? Oh, gold medal right there. <laughs> yeah, at least gold medal for us at least. Gold medal um, personality. Yeah, they're just, they're both entertaining in so many different ways. I'm curious to see how Barty goes at Wimbledon just because she's been dealing with injuries that forced her to withdraw from the French Open, but also forced her to withdraw from the Italian Open prior to the French Open. So hopefully she's feeling fit and healthy both over the next two and a half weeks, but also then in a month's time come Tokyo because the tennis season is just 
so demanding on everyone's bodies with how many tournaments they'll play back to back to back. But another thing that I would love to see on the Olympic stage, as much as <laughs> I don't like this other player, is Kyrgios versus Djokovic. I just think it could be a really entertaining match that people that don't really care about tennis can finally get exposed to possibly the strangest rivalry between a world number one and a world number, I think he's in the 50s currently with Kyrgios. Well, he is in the world number 50s, but his personality is right up there. It's kind of number one or number two. Uh, the, the one that I'm really excited to see is Naomi Osaka, um, who has basically indicated that she will be returning from her Grand Slam isolation um, to play in front of her home crowd at Tokyo, um, as quiet as they may be, as Hamish mentioned. But I think one of the really good things about Osaka playing in front of her home crowd is that she's going to probably get some different treatment from the media at home. Um, and I think that that might be a really comfortable way for her to be able to explain a bit more about it and hopefully change the, the tone and the way that the media covers her because she is such a great athlete and such a great spokeswoman for the sport and it would be a shame to, to lose her perspective. Yeah, I would say that she's going to go in as the favourite should she be, should she actually be there, I should say. Uh, she's just so dominant on the hard court. Her playing style is phenomenal on top of the fact that she has a personality that brings fans of the sport to into her, like to support her. And it's not just because she's soft-spoken and introverted, but you look at how quick the turnaround was when people actually found out that the reason why she didn't want to speak to the media during the French Open was because of the issues she was dealing with. And people immediately realised we've taken the wrong approach, not only with this athlete, but I think a lot of people then realised the way that we're covering athletes isn't great as far as how those press conferences go. And she's not someone to say, I'm just here so I don't get fined. Um, which was why she chose to boycott. <laughs> that brings back some great memories of Marshall Lynch at Super Bowls. Yeah, now I'm just trying to think, is there any way we could get Marshall Lynch to Olympics or something in track or field or something? Probably a bit too late now, but speaking of personalities, he'd be a great one to see on the world stage. Yeah, and on the front of um, major US media sporting controversies, <laughs> the... <laughs> The Boomers have announced their 19-man training squad, um, which will have four names further to go out of it. Um, and, of course, the polarising Ben Simmons is on that list for the moment. Um, it would be Ben's first uh, appearance at the Olympics, and there's lots of athletes who have previously represented Australia at the Olympics, like Aaron Baines, Ryan Brockoff, and, of course, our favourite Paddy Mills, who's been to three previous Olympics. Um, but there are also some some really exciting young stars, including guys like Josh Giddy and Josh Green um, and Matisse Thibel, who plays with Simmons on the sixes. Um, but it's a pretty interesting list um, and, you know, gives us a fair bit of excitement about the chance to push for our first medal in men's basketball at the Tokyo Olympics. I guess we, we came pretty close in um, in Rio in 2016. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how we go um, again in Tokyo and, you know, with maybe a bit of a bit of a stronger squad um, this this time around, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think with Ben Simmons, that'll be another sort of um, intriguing one to watch, I guess, just to see how that plays out um, um, as well. So, yeah, plenty to plenty to look forward to. I think for the Aussies. Yeah, I 
was reading earlier today, I believe it was, that Ben Simmons might actually miss out on the Olympics of his own choice to focus on the NBA um, and his own training. Obviously, the exit of Philly, (laughs) some people believe that it was all Ben Simmons' fault because his shooting game isn't the best and that's something that he wants to adjust. But from my own perspective, and I guess a lot of Aussie perspectives in that we don't want Simmons to miss out on the Olympics a second time because it was hoped that he would go in 2016. I think that the environment that he could be in with the boomers might actually help his game a little bit more than spending time just working on your shooting game. It's a great opportunity for him. It'll boost him with confidence, whether they win a medal or not. And I actually think that the boomers are a better chance of winning a medal than they've been at the past couple of Olympics, especially if he's in that side. Yeah. I mean, Simmons, is still one of the most damaging basketball players in the world. Um, you get him in transition and he's pretty much unstoppable and he'd be a really handy defender against that that bloke um, Durant, I think they called him, um, <laughs> if we get to, to play against the US. So I hope he goes. Yeah, I think uh, just stemming off that, I think why there's been so much optimism for this coming Olympics is it's really been building for a while with uh, past Olympic campaigns and uh FIBA uh, World Championships games. But the big thing a lot of people were banking on was that Ben Simmons was going to be a part of the Olympics this year. And of course, like even though he's very early in his career and is probably uh, the most polarizing and probably maligned player in the world at the moment coming out of uh, that finals exit to Atlanta in the NBA. But he's still the best talent Australia's uh, probably ever produced. And even though the reports are indicating that it looks like he won't be part of the Boomer squad, which is really sad to see. I think, to your point, Jackie, it could actually be really good for him to take part in it. Obviously, he needs to put himself first, and it is understandable, having had so much scrutiny after exiting the NBA playoffs, to kind of be seen as like the real spearhead for the Boomers in what a lot of people are hoping would be the first time that Australia takes home some sort of international medal I can understand from his perspective where he thinks he might need to get himself and his game right before taking that commitment but a lot of people talk about the culture that this Boomers squad produces and even just seeing the passion of the likes of Paddy Mills, uh, Aaron Baines, Joe Ingles who are really all about this opportunity and build up to it for four in this case five years until it happens I think being around that culture and those players who are really experienced could be possibly the best thing for him, as he said. Yeah. And without talking too much about like that NBA finals campaign that obviously ended (laughs) in the worst way for him, I think he needs to be reminded as to how good of a player he is, especially his defensive game. He's all defense in the NBA. Two years running? Three years running. Two. Yeah. And ultimately that is what he's in teams for. His shooting game is not the most important thing in the world. And it doesn't take one player to lose a final series. They went to game seven. So you can't just blame Ben Simmons for what happened, but fans obviously, and even the media will sometimes want to point fingers at one individual when it's the team that loses ultimately, not just the one player. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so hopefully, you know, that becomes some really good news for, for Australia. And any other kind of big names in Australian selection? Um, well, you had a look at the swimming and, and Carl Chalmers is going to be back to defend his gold medal. 
Yeah, that's right. Blockbuster sort of selection week for the the swimming team. Obviously, the the Olympic swimming trials taking place in in Adelaide, and we've got the got the Aussie teams confirmed. So yeah, lots of um lots of names, some new faces, and some some old faces as well. And Kyle Chalmers probably the uh the sort of notable one um from the men's team and yeah he'll be he'll be back to defend his the gold he won at rio in the 100 meter freestyle um and i think we we touched on touched on this a couple of weeks ago as well with mac horton um didn't didn't qualify for for the 400 freestyle where he won gold in um in rio but um mitch larkin as well he won silver at rio um in the 200 backstroke but he hasn't qualified for that um at for Tokyo either, but he will be will be there to uh, compete in the hundred meter backstroke and two hundred individual medley. Yeah, I think Mitch Larkin's an interesting case because there was talk about uh, him his roster for the actual Olympics this year because it was sounding like he could have had five events that he'd qualify in, but he's only gone with the two, which are possibly the two that he actually does have the better chance in. I know that he is a reigning silver medalist in the 200 meter backstroke, but the fact that he's going to be able to then focus on like having the 100 meter backstroke, I should say, but then also have the focus on the 200 medley, which he should do quite well in is going to be huge for him. And I think he's a good chance of bringing home another medal. It might not necessarily be gold, but he's looking really good, especially at trials last week. Yeah, absolutely. There are a number of swimmers who, who kind of showed that, you know, they might have full programs, but there's a couple of events that they look particularly good for. And, and the one that kind of drew my attention is Ariane Titmus. Um, she's going to go toe-to-toe with Katie Ledecky, as we mentioned earlier. Um, and at the moment, she's on the program for the 200, 400 and 800 freestyles. And there'll probably be a relay or two in there chucked in as well, because that's just how that works. Um, and she came home in an absolute storm um, at the trials. She had the new Australian record in the 800 free, um, which is the fastest time in the world this year. Um, and she was only just behind Katie Ledecky's world record in the 400 um, as well. So she's certainly showing some great form and she also wasn't really coming off a taper. So there's probably a little bit of room for improvement. And I would guess that whoever wins the 400 freestyle gold at Tokyo will have to break the world record to do it. Yeah, it might not necessarily be a world record just purely because of the fact that whatever the pace they set will dictate the race, but you could quite easily see more than one record getting broken in those long-distance events, Um, especially the 1,500 metre for the women's uh, with Madeleine Goff, which I believe we talked about last week, but... If she's going up against Katie Ledecky and the two can set a good pace against each other, that's going to be a very fast race for a 1500 meter. Granted, it's still a 15 minute race. <laughs> so saying that a it's a relative term. Yeah, it's certainly relative in the grand scheme of things. Um, and, and even though Titmus is making her debut, there's a couple of great stories about four time Olympians. Um, with Emily Seabom and Kate Campbell on their way back to their fourth Olympics. Um, They'll have been at all of the Olympics since Beijing, and it's a pretty impressive achievement. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, And, yeah, Kate Campbell will be be competing in the 50 and 100 freestyle, um, as she has in in the past. And, um, 
and uh, Emily Seabom the 100 and 200 backstroke. So that's that's exciting for them. Four four Olympics is really that's a, a fantastic achievement, um, and yeah, just testament to their to their skill and, and longevity in um, in their sport. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Will, you broke down. Um, it's quite an experienced team. Um, you know, there are some athletes who've got you know multiple trips to the Olympics before, but there's a lot of debutants as well. Yeah, so for for the women's, there'll be 10, um, 10 debutants um, at, at Tokyo and Ariane Titmus, as we spoke about just before, is um, sort of the most notable of those. And then um, 10 debutants um, in the men's as well. But um, yeah, five... Um, Five women's swimmers will be at their second game. So obviously um, after um, all going to the 2016 games in Rio and then um, and then four, yeah, four of the men will be at their second games as well. Um, and and third, um, third games for the women, um, Bronte Campbell um, will, will be there. And um, for the men, as we spoke about before, Mitch Larkin is one, and, and Cam McAvoy as well. So plenty of plenty of experience and plenty of youth as well. So it looks like it'd be really exciting, um, really exciting to see the Aussies hit the pool in in Tokyo. Bronte Campbell's a really interesting one. Can you imagine being a three-time Olympian and not the most accomplished person in your family? I mean, three-time Olympian and a gold medalist. <laughs> your sister a, is slightly better. It's going to be a pretty tough time at family dinner. Yeah, it was funny watching trials last week, just in the sense of I've been quite bullish about this swimming team and been like, now we need to like settle expectations and not like throw everything on them and say, we're going to win 27 gold medals in the pool. And now I'm like, oh, we're going to do so well in the pool. (laughs) And so I've got to like recheck myself again and be like, okay, like remember this US team is phenomenal. There's going to be some great swimmers coming out of Japan, China, uh, and especially country like the European swimmers, but trials get you excited about the swimming again, that you forget how exciting the trials and the swimming event at the Olympics are until it comes around every four or in this case, five years. Yeah, absolutely. And um, one of those events that, you know, maybe is not quite as high profile um, as we think about the Olympics in Australia, but certainly is one that, um, you know, we have an expert in and we've brought him in tonight is the fencing. And Hamish, you're going to teach us a little bit about it? Uh, yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, I will say if I hadn't dislocated my knee, then it would be a relevant sport in Australia. But uh, I'll... <laughs> I like yeah, the confidence. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's... Having seen the way he writes, I believe it. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, it's definitely putting a bit of mail on it. But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed doing fencing and it was great to kind of circle back to it and write about it a bit because I think it is a really unique sport. Like a lot of people don't know a lot about it, except it's the sport where you get to like poke people or like with swords and stuff, which is a lot of fun. But I think what made it interesting to me, especially since I came in with a bit of pre-existing knowledge, but blind when I started it is uh, just the technicalities behind it. And I guess the basis why I'd start. So in fencing, there's three different swords. So there's foil, saber and epee, and they're all actually quite different. So uh, for at least from my experience, I feel that's far more, skill-based the only target area is the torso area so mainly the chest and 
Uh, yeah, basically for that one, you have a foil, which is a thrusting weapon. So you make attacks by lunging and thrusting. So you're aiming to uh, hit the torso of the body with the tip of the blade, while you juxtapose that with something like Sabre, which is actually a slashing weapon. So with that one, you're aiming to get people with kind of like the back or kind of actual blade itself and at least in my experience i found that one was the one i enjoyed the most because it seemed to be a bit more power based which not being the most agile or athletic person that kind of suited my kind of uh, skills a bit better and finally epe a lot of people kind of like to joke a bit more casually that that's the crazy sword where anything goes because there's uh literally no rules uh, i forgot to mention with sabers so for that one, the mask and the hand, are, the weapon hand are legal. And in Sabre, you actually try and aim for the mask primarily when lunging. And then when you're defending, you might try and cut to the side. But yeah, with so, uh, foil, yeah, that's a blade where anything goes. And if you're learning fencing, you'll quite often actually learn uh, epee last because it's kind of like learning any sports without any of the relevant rule books. It's kind of impossible to go back after you go to the FA, which is all about kind of uh, being a bit sneaky in some ways. So you can look at ways of trying to jab the uh, weapon hand or even one strategy that somebody who uh, I can't speak too much. I wasn't the most skilled fencer, but he was a bit below my level. What he try and do is poke people's feet while they were trying to attack him because literally every part of the body is uh, legal in FA. So what you're saying is that foil is basically a poking contest. Um, Saber is dancing with swords and Epe is like a sword fight. Yeah, I I mean, I guess it depends (laughs) what uh, definition you think of uh, fencing or sword fighting in general. I think Saber is kind of what you might think of as something like Pirates of the Caribbean or like Knights because you're actually trying to uh, slash people a bit. Well, I guess uh, foil and Epe, since you are the main way you get contact is you get people with the tip of the blade. So uh, kind of poking them in a way. And uh, I will say, like uh, I alluded to it at the start, but like fencing, you do have the mask on to protect you. But sometimes if the opponent's feeling quite mean, they can poke you quite hard with the tip of their blade. And even in Sabre, you need to be careful that you kind of uh, hide your non weapon hand because there were a couple of times where like people would have a bit of a far reach with the sabre blade and if it gets your hand then yeah it can cut you open quite quickly because it you are moving at quite a high speed and velocity to try and get people it is uh it's just so interesting and i think it's a real shame that we haven't had an olympian since beijing um we had joanna halls and amber parkinson then at the uh, the women's individual foil and epee respectively, um, is there, given that we don't have any Australians, Hamish, what do you recommend about the best way for us to uh, kind of get into fencing and enjoy it? Well, I guess as you kind of said, part of the issue is that there aren't too many, uh, well, Australia hasn't competed since Beijing and it's never placed in terms of, uh, winning a medal at the event. The highest ever finish was by Greg Benko at Montreal, and that was back in 1976 in the men's individual uh, foil. He finished sixth. So it's fair to say that Australia's been a quite a bit fair away from uh, getting a medal. But what I would say is if you want to get involved, hopefully there's 
some sort of fencing club in your area. Uh, I was fortunate enough to do it at school, but I know uh, you might find a fencing club at a university or just locally because while it isn't the most prominent sport, there are a lot of people who do it and it is a lot of fun. It does take quite a bit of time to learn because I remember somebody once related it to kind of ballet with swords, which at the time I thought was a bit weird, but in many ways it actually is because you kind of have to relearn and remaneuver how you move because your legs are always in a squat position while you're walking around. Uh, even the way you practice, it's very much almost like stage fencing because the best way you learn is you'll have the instructor teach you how to do specific moves. So one person attacks the other blocks, they do a riposte, which is a counter attacking turn. And then it's kind of like, it's almost scripted in a way because you just have to get this repetitiveness almost to get these different attacks, uh, blocks, which are parries and counter riposte down by muscle memory, because when you're in an actual uh, bout, you need to have it almost be second instinct to make sure you move, maneuver the blade properly, because it's not only about defending yourself, but the different kind of parries and repostes of teaching you where to hold your blade. Uh, it took me a lot of time to make sure that I did it exactly correctly, but you need to make sure you have all the techniques nailed down because that gives you the best chance of not only defending yourself, but also getting your opponent's blade out, out of the way. So you're in a good position to kind of counter attack and uh, try and get a point. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Let Super me technical. Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask, uh, I know that fencing at the Olympics has had a team event for quite some time, which to me sounded semi-weird, but can you like break down like what the team event is, I guess, within fencing? Yeah, definitely. Because uh, I remember a couple of times when I fenced, we had to fence as a team and uh it's a bit different. So it's not like you kind of have a battle royale or something where everybody's trying to fight each other, which now that I say it sounds like a bit of a fun event. But yeah, basically the way a team event works is there's obviously the different countries involved. Uh, each country has four people, so three fences and one reserve. And at this year's Olympics, something which is pretty exciting is that they're going to be team events for all three different swords. So there's going to be 12 offense in total, uh, six uh, individual offense and six team offense. While in the past, uh, uh, one of the team offense for both the men and women would miss out. So yeah, the way the 16 competition works is it's kind of a round robin style format. So uh, two fences from the respective countries will face off. And the way it works is whoever gets the five points first wins, or there's also... Uh, three, three minute, sorry, nine, sorry, the round is three minutes. So if neither fencer gets to five points by the end of those three minutes, then uh, you just move on to the next person. So there's nine bouts in total between the six respective fences from either side fencing. It just kind of goes through uh, those different sides until every person on either side has fenced each other and the winning team is whoever gets to 45 points first or has the highest score at the end of the ninth round. Fascinating. I mean, it's it's a really technical sport. I think for a lot of us in Australia, it's a bit of a hidden world, something we don't really peek behind the curtain of because we don't really have that kind of global play on there. Um, so it's really great to kind of get a bit more understanding about it and certainly an event that I will be 
keeping my out, eye out for it. Kicks off pretty early on in the games um, with July 24th, just the first full day of competition. Um, we've got the men's individual Sabre and the women's individual Epe. Um, and we wrap up about a week in with uh, the men's team foil on the 1st of August. Yeah, thank you for telling us all about fencing, Hamish, because we were looking at it and we were a bit lost until you were like, I have a fencing background, which is exciting to be able to bring you onto the pod rather than just us three talking amongst ourselves like it is a lot of the time. But we'll wrap up here. Uh, This has been Ascending Olympus. Thank you for listening. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at Ascending Pod, where we are releasing previews for each Olympic event daily. You can also find us on the Inner Sanctum website, which is theinnersanctum.com.au. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.